Okay, greetings, everyone, and welcome to HPAC Engineers Monthly Podcast, HPAC on the Air. Our guest this month is Dr. William Bonifleff, an ASHRAE past president, chair of the group's ongoing epidemic task force, professor of architectural engineering at Penn State University, and a longtime member of our own editorial advisory board. The registered engineer, Bill, holds a BS, MS, and PhD degrees in mechanical engineering from the University of Illinois, and is a fellow at ASHRAE, the American Society of Mechanical Engineers, and the International Society for Indoor Air Quality and Climate. Bill, welcome to HPAC on the Air. Oh, great to be with you. Um, yeah, thanks so much for joining us at, at this especially busy time, now that engineering students are back at Penn State, I think just this week. Um, but let's, let's dive right into the ASHRAE Epidemic Task Force and go back to early 2020, if we can, when the depths of the, the pandemic was, was just becoming a reality. Can you tell us a little bit about how the ETF came into being, how you became its chair, and how it came to be structured? Uh, sure, happy to give you a little synopsis of that. And of course, the uh, awareness of the pandemic developed very rapidly. I, I think uh, the index case in, in China was in, in December, and uh, we were only aware of it to a, a small extent when the uh, ASHRAE winter meeting happened in Orlando in, in, uh, at the end of January of 2020. There were some exhibitors who didn't show up for the show, and there was some concern about this is going to grow. But uh, between then and, and uh, February or March, it got into the U.S. and really took off. And so by, by about uh, late February, early March, it was clear that this was going to be a big issue um, in the U.S. as well as the rest of the world. And ASHRAE leadership approached the Environmental Health Committee uh, to ask if there should be an ASHRAE uh, group working specifically on pandemic response and uh, asked a lot of other questions about what that should look like and what it should do. And so the uh, end point of, of that whole process was that I was asked to chair a group which I was actually invited to name. I didn't even have a name when, when they asked me and to uh, propose what we would do and how we would do it. So it was really a, an unparalleled opportunity in my career really as a, a volunteer or a, a professional to uh, start with a clean sheet of paper to try to solve a problem. And the one thing that was clear was that um, we needed to respond quickly. And, uh, and most will know that uh, speed is not one of the things that ASHRAE is known for in producing new standards and, and other things, high quality work, but it, but it takes time. So we were really being asked to uh, cut against the grain of, of uh, typical ASHRAE process. So I, uh, I decided that what we would do was, was to uh, make a small group but with a lot of leverage. So instead of getting 15 or 20 people together and saying, we're going to write all of this guidance, uh, I, I put together a group of subject matter experts in areas that I thought were going to be important. It was mostly structured around different uh, types of building occupancy, but also around some key things like air filtration, disinfection and commissioning and that sort of thing. And I said to, to those people, uh, go out and find whoever you need to make a team that you will lead and you produce guidance in that area and we're going to function more or less as a steering committee. So 
that initial group of uh, 15, 20 people, it's, it's grown a little bit over time, actually wound up working with uh, over 130 uh, subject matter experts in, in different fields. And um, one of the other things that I think was important in the way that uh, the group was put together was that while we were free to operate as this ad hoc uh, group put together with the authority of the, the ASHRAE board, uh, I insisted that they reach out to the rest of the society and to work with uh, technical committees and standards committees and whoever else was necessary so that we were really trying to uh, integrate the effort from the very beginning. So that was how it was structured and operated. We started meeting about two hours every two weeks and we've had uh, more than 25 meetings now in that time, it slowed down a little bit. The other thing I should mention is that our scope was first of all, to develop guidance quickly and then to refine guidance and third, to uh, make recommendations for the future and uh, look at what ASHRAE needed to do once there was no epidemic task force. And that's actually why we called it the epidemic task force instead of the COVID-19 task force, because uh, we wanted to have a vision from the beginning that we weren't simply putting a Band-Aid on a short-term problem, but trying to set a new direction for ASHRAE so that uh, the next time something like this came up, we would be prepared and uh, society would be prepared to respond better than we've been able to do now. And now it's almost a year and a half later, I guess. Uh, uh, and after all this research with, with, the, with the group that you've done and, and all the, uh, the outreach to the different committees and, and meetings and whatnot uh, with the debate, consensus, recommendations, revisions, and I think you say yeah, now you have more than 400 pages of guidance, I believe. I'm sure if you added it all up, it's, it's more than that, yes. Even more, okay. Well, can you, can you sum up, I guess, where we are now with what the, uh, uh, I know it's a, it's a one-pager, I guess, on the, uh, uh, on the ASHRAE.org uh, on the website, but can you sum up a bit what the, the latest core recommendations are for, the, uh, for our HVAC audience? Sure. The core recommendations, uh, as you can uh, read about in a little article that Jason DeGraw and I wrote in the ASHRAE Journal, I think it was published in May, uh, were written to be a concise statement of the key points of guidance that are elaborated in uh, those longer documents that relate to commercial buildings and schools and residential buildings, et cetera. We decided we needed those towards the end of 2020, and they were actually publicly issued in January of, of this year, but we were uh, working them into our guidance months be before that. And as a preface to, to saying what's actually there, I should note that the initial response from just about everybody was throw anything against the wall uh, in the way of a control that, that might stick. So um, increase outdoor air to the maximum amount, uh, no recirculation, turn off energy recovery wheels because there might be recirculation, run your HVAC system all of the time. Uh, ultra conservative, but many were saying those things. And initially that was the kind of guidance that came out of uh, an ASHRAE position document on infectious aerosols. We started to see Im immediately that, that there were issues with that kind of guidance, that it was clearly uh, not con uh, overly conservative in, in a lot of ways, and that a lot of the things that were uh, being proposed as, as controls for COVID risk were going to burn a lot of energy and were going to be expensive for owners. And so there was pushback on it. And over the course of 
of 2020 from the time we started issuing guidance and maybe it was May or June through late in the year, we started rethinking our approach to make it more flexible and to dial back things that clearly didn't seem to be necessary anymore so that we had a package of, of recommendations that, that could be implemented pretty flexibly to, to suit the, the needs of a particular building. They're not perfect, but I think it's a, it's a pretty good guide given what we know and the time that we, uh, we had available to produce it. So uh, what do the, the guidelines say? Uh, the first thing is, that we say is, is follow public health guidance. So uh, this, this goes along with the, the Swiss cheese approach to risk management or, or layering. Uh, we can't rely on any one type of control like HVAC to remove uh, risk to the, the maximum amount. We can't eliminate risk, of course. That's the first thing to say. But, but these other layers are important. And so in, uh, in public health guidance, distancing and, and masking were things that, that we noted. Um, and you would add to that now vaccination. It isn't explicitly in there because we were just getting vaccines when we, uh, we wrote that. But I think we would say that today because obviously that has a big effect where it's done. Then we move on to things that actually relate to HVAC. One of them is uh, ventilation. And uh, a lot has been published about how much uncontaminated air it takes to uh, reduce risk to an acceptable level. We've not published a, a hard recommendation on that, but uh, we do say that buildings should at least have their code minimum outdoor air as a starting point. That doesn't mean that's enough protection based on what we know from risk analysis, but you shouldn't um, go under what the, the code requires. And, and that's important because a lot of buildings aren't actually up to code, which suggests that they need to be fixed. Another thing that we've said about ventilation is that uh, we recommend not enabling demand-controlled ventilation during the pandemic because that reduces the amount of outdoor air in proportion to population. And that uh, clearly is something that could increase risk. So for the time being, we, we recommend not doing that, uh, operating the system when people are present. That, that is, is important, and it also implicitly says you don't have to run it all of the time. Uh, initially, we'd been saying 24-7. Uh, when you look at the, the, the risk analysis, that doesn't really seem to be necessary. Uh, add filtration up to MERV-13 if you can do it, and if not MERV-13, well, uh, some other combination of controls that will get you there and to uh, protect against transmission through HVAC systems when it might occur. There's some cases where it's unlikely, others where it's possible. That was going back from, well, you must put in MERV-13 filters. And immediately we started hearing about all of the uh, situations in which it wasn't possible to do it. So that was another instance of uh, lightening up. Uh, we encourage the use of air cleaners, but only air cleaners that are well characterized in terms of their uh, effectiveness and and safety. And of course, that could be a long discussion in itself. But basically, at this point, the one that ASHRAE is, is very comfortable with is germicidal ultraviolet air disinfection, but other technologies may be used. There's a lot of, of work going on right now to answer questions about efficacy and, and safety. So that's uh, ventilation and air cleaning. We, we put out a, uh, a short recommendation on uh, air distribution to avoid strong air currents that could uh, transmit 
infectious aerosol over long distances and increased risk. We've seen cases like a restaurant in Korea where uh, air distribution seems to have been the major factor in the original Guangzhou restaurant in, in, in China where it was a secondary factor along with poor ventilation. And we don't really come down very hard on one way or the other on what type of air distribution, whether it should be stratified or, or mixing, because there's evidence that uh, stratification can fail when we're trying to, to uh, control infectious aerosols. So we, we generally gave the nod to, to mixing without strong air currents, because that's what most buildings have. Uh, there are a lot of operational recommendations. Some of them I've already touched on, like having systems run when the building is occupied. We changed the recommendation to shut off ERVs, to evaluate ERVs, to, to see whether they actually present a significant risk of uh, re-entry, because in most cases they don't. It depends on the fan arrangement, uh, and also to look at other sources of re-entry and, and a few other uh, points like that. We, we changed 24-7 uh, operation and flushing in the core recommendations to allow adequate clearance time between occupancy periods when you're changing over, say between class uh, breaks in a, in a school. We had originally said flush your building for two hours before and after the start of occupancy. And, and uh, we realized that if you really have a, an unoccupied building overnight, you're really just wasting a lot of energy by ventilating all those extra hours because any clearance that can be done by ventilation happens uh, much sooner. So what we're focusing on now is uh, if you want to reuse a space quickly, flushing it to clear the, the air fairly well is, is a good idea. And, and that is boiled down to three air changes of uh, uncontaminated air, which could be actual outdoor air, which might take a fairly long while, or uh, accounting for both outdoor air and, and filtration. Humidification we've and temperature, we've said uh, maintain the set points you've got. I think the evidence at this point is that um, putting humidification into a building that doesn't have, have it, issues of potentially damaging the building aside, doesn't have as much impact as other sorts of, of uh, measures that could be taken. So we suggest simply standing pad on that one. And the, the final recommendation is to commission buildings because we know that so many of them are not functioning up to their design intent. And, and so uh, that makes them unreliable. And it means they're probably wasting energy as well as not providing good indoor air quality. So in a fairly large nutshell, that's uh, what we're recommending. And I suppose I should slide in there a word about uh, portable or, or standalone air cleaners for the present when it's hard to modify central systems, that does seem to be a good approach. And that is lumped together with recommendations to uh, improve filter efficiency. The core recommendations that the latest version, I think was published in January, as you say, is there, is, so that's that's basically what you've been citing and that, that's what's still in effect. Is there, are there any, has there been discussion of any kind of revisions to that or is that that's pretty much standing the way it is for, uh, for the time being? But we've, we've talked about, Two things. I, I think there are there are really uh, mainly two areas in which um, it would be nice to be able to say more, but they're both difficult to deal with. One is air distribution. Certainly, a lot can be done with control of directional airflow and stratification to uh, make ventilation more efficient, even personal ventilation. But it's hard to do that in existing buildings and. 
um, we've had a group work on it and we may have them issuing some, some guidance, but we haven't uh, seen that rise to the level of something that should change the recommendation that we have, the core recommendation. The other thing is that what's implied in the core recommendations is that you can combine different controls, ventilation, filtration, air cleaners to achieve a risk reduction target at a reasonable cost and sustainably. And uh, the unanswered question is what is a, a reasonable target? And uh, we've, we've worked on that quite a bit, trying to come up with something as simple as, well, four to six air changes per hour is, is what everyone should shoot for. And when you start looking at a lot of different space types, you find that there's quite a few for which that would be um, very good in terms of relative airborne risk reduction, but there are others for which it's overkill and others for which it's not enough. And there are also many different ways of looking at what is acceptable risk. Is it reducing it to a level based on the incidence of disease in the population that will help a, a, an epidemic burnout? Or are we looking at the uh, more conservative approach of if I know there's a, an infected person in this space and I want to have a very low risk of being infected by them over a certain period of time when we're there together, what should I do? So when you try to establish these, these limits, you immediately get into discussions about what uh, everyone thinks uh, the right approach is to defining acceptable risk. And so we've left that a bit open. I mean, there are good recommendations out there. The World Health Organization has recommended for non-healthcare buildings, uh, residential and non-residential, 10 liters per second per person, which is I think 21.2 CFM per person of cleaned air. And we do have the recommendations for schools that uh, were put out by Harvard uh, School of Public Health and others that are pretty consistent of four to six air changes. And if you look at ASHRAE standard 170, when uh, you pick out the spaces where infection control is an important consideration, they generally have a requirement for a minimum of six air changes of, of supply air, most of which can be recirculated. And that's generally going through MERV 14 or, or higher filters. So that six air change number seems like a reasonable point to try to get to if you can. Somewhat lower is, is okay, but it's, it's not uh, something that we understand well enough or can present simply enough that I think it makes sense for uh, ASHRAE to put a stake in the ground now as to what it should be because then everyone would rely on it. And really in a lot of cases, they ought to be doing their own risk assessment based on all of the measures they're taking to manage risk. Okay, and I mean, it certainly sounds reasonable here now that the, now the new school year starting and all, and I guess everybody is, is trying to do, or I would like, like to think that everybody's trying to do their own risk assessments. In, now in, in May, I guess if looking at some of the things that, that actually might be more hopeful coming out of this as well, in May, you had co-authored an article in Science Magazine with, I think, 39 other scientists and IAQ experts and engineers. And it was entitled, A Paradigm Shift to Combat Indoor Respiratory Infections. And uh, you were hopeful that it could, that this kind of, this moment could, could help to spur designers to become more proactive in creating healthier building environments and moving forward. But there's been some pushback, I guess, from, from practicing engineers who argue that taking on such roles will expose them to new liability and future lawsuits. Um, now, can you explain a little bit about, well, explain this, 
what you see this this hopeful paradigm shift a bit that was discussed in the article and why you believe that those other concerns might be uh, misplaced. Sure. Um, well, of course, you know, I felt this, I would have felt this way and, and said the same things, even if this uh, group had never gotten together and written this article, I felt this way about indoor air quality uh, for years. But I, I think two things have happened during the pandemic. One is that a lot of effort has gone into um, understanding how some respiratory diseases, some important respiratory diseases are transmitted. That would in include you know, coronaviruses like SARS, MERS, and COVID-19 and uh, seasonal influenza. And there's really a pretty strong case now that uh, inhalation of aerosols is a big part of that. And so that makes disease transmission partly a matter of, of exposure to air contaminants that we know how to control. Uh, what transmits infections are uh, particles or droplets in the air that, that have active pathogens in them and uh, we're exposed to them in that environment. So we've established that, I think, not everyone does in the uh, infectious disease epidemiology community, but I, I think it's been tending that way. And so uh, given that, it would indicate that buildings have an important role to play in mitigating risk of some of these diseases, not just uh, the ones that come around every hundred years, like 1918 epidemic and, and the current one, but seasonal influenza, which uh, you know, costs billions of dollars per year in, in uh, healthcare costs and uh, contributes to a lot of excess mortality. So uh, it seems like uh, what the, the article calls a, a tractical, tractable problem. We, we could do something to reduce risk. And you know, the fact is that if you pick up a, a ventilation and indoor air quality standard like ASHRAE standard 62.1 or 62.2, you find that the definition of what's acceptable in it doesn't address communicable diseases or airborne infections. It deals with the kinds of contaminants that are associated with building emissions and outdoor air and uh, with bioeffluent from people, and uh, it's really just silent on issue of infection uh, risk reduction. And we know from comparing uh, those standards for non-healthcare buildings with the standards that we use in healthcare buildings, that uh, the levels of ventilation and filtration that we have in most buildings are not adequate for significant risk mitigation. So the paradigm change is to, to actually bring some of that thinking into the development of these minimum standards for non-healthcare facilities. And I, I think that's a fairly state for, a straightforward task. We can do risk assessments for known diseases and uh, come up with agreed upon ventilation rates and filter efficiencies and other guidelines that will help us make buildings safer. And I, I don't see that as being a lot different than the process that uh, was used to develop the ventilation rates that we have. We have ventilation rates that are supposed to not only uh, make air acceptable from the point of view of odors, but uh, also to make it safe from the point of view of exposure to uh, known contaminants of concern in the air, uh, PM 2.5 and formaldehyde and some of the other things in the air. So I think this argument about uh, health and exposing professionals to liability is, is a little bit of a red herring. It's, I've, I've been hearing it years long before 
uh, COVID-19. Uh, if, we, if we say anything about health and air quality standards, then we're exposing professionals to, uh, to liability. And I think it's somewhat misstating what we're trying to do, which is to take advantage of a large and growing body of work that indicates that by improving indoor air quality, we can reduce deficits in health and deficits in performance that are the result of indoor exposures. Uh, we're not saying that uh, indoor air can make you healthy, but we know that if, if we don't treat it right, it can make you sick. And, and I, I think that's something that we ought to be comfortable with from a, a standard of care regulatory point of view that if a, a designer is implementing things that are in standards that uh, are intended to go beyond uh, the normal spectrum of contaminants we were used to and, and beyond odor control and uh, reduce risk of infection, I, I don't see a liability there. Now, if, if you um, interpret it the way the, the case is, is being made, then yes, if, if an engineer goes out and says, uh, I'll, I'll do this to your building and uh, it, it will make you healthier and you'll be more productive, uh, promising that that's a, a different case. We've, but that's no different than saying that if we limit all of these other VOC contaminants and, and PM, um, that you're, you're going to be healthy. That, that's not guaranteed either. So it's raising the bar on, on what our expectations are. And it's important to take that concern about liability into consideration when we do it so that it really isn't a problem. Uh, if you look at what's currently available, the World Health Organization for some time has had recommendations out on levels of indoor contaminant exposure that are consistent with health, not just with, with safety. So uh, the main thing for professionals, I think, is to have some authority that establishes those limits that go into the, um, into the codes and, uh, and the standards that they reference. And, and then it shouldn't be a substantially different um, environment than it is now. And, and I think the other thing I would say is we design healthcare facilities to protect people's health and, and nobody seems to have a problem with that. So I, I don't see it as, as much different from moving say 62.1 somewhat in the direction of 170 in ASHRAE. And it actually could be, I mean, to, as building owners and developers try to uh, lure people back to the offices downtown, it could be more driven by the owners too, as far as trying to, 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 to be able to tell people that their buildings are healthier. Yeah, that, that's been a selling point, of course, for uh, green buildings uh, right. For, right. for some time. And if, if you actually read this article that we're, we're talking about, I think it uh, is, is pretty balanced and reasonable in terms of, of what it's talking about. It's using demand control ventilation uh, when you need it, perhaps, to increase ventilation rates. Uh, ventilation should be ad made adequate on demand, but not unreasonably high. Uh, I think you'll, you'll find that uh, the, the authors, even though most of them are, are not uh, registered professional engineers who have a background in practice like I am, uh, recognize that there are practical issues here of mm -hmm. uh, cost and, and uh, sustainability that, that should be addressed. And if we enter into uh, an effort to, to do this, keeping all those things in mind, I think we can't help but improve the quality of our buildings. Okay, and, and actually that dovetails into the, just kind of looking 
trying to gaze forward a bit as to how the everything is going to look a year from now or so. I mean, given what how the the nation's vaccine performance at, at the moment and and uh, the emergence of the I guess the Delta variant, but there's been so much progress with vaccines and whatnot. Where do you think? I don't know. Where, where do you think this task force is? The task force still going to be around? Oh, yeah. Actually, you said it would be a year a year from now or something because it's it's been named to uh, to look at all epidemics or, and and risks for that in the future. But where do you think we're going to be in relation to this whole thing? Um, say next fall or next summer. Yeah, boy, that's uh, going out on a limb, isn't it? Given that uh, a new variant that's even worse could crop up. Well, yes, the, the task force has been approved uh, to operate through all of this year if it needs to. I, I think uh, we, we've transitioned from a, um, uh, a work plan of mainly developing guidance to being about as built out as we can be on that, given what we know. The things that we don't know that would help improve guidance generally require research that hasn't been done yet, or they relate more to new buildings than existing buildings. And, and that's, a, I think, a good point to start to tie it off and try to transition this effort back to the mainstream standing committees, uh, technical and, and uh, uh, standards and others within ASHRAE. And so the, the main things we're doing now are continuing to communicate. I think there's a, a, an infinite need to communicate with the professionals and the public about what we're recommending. So a lot of what's happening now is continuing to uh, do webinars and meet with different groups, uh, including some in government that are thinking about policy and programs to fund improvements, <clears throat> and then a transition to going away. So I, I don't want the task force to be here if I can help it past the end of this ASHRAE Society year. And one of the main tasks that each of our teams has right now is to develop a transition plan and to write their, their final report section and recommendations so we can do that. I think that's a, a point of, say, risk for us because we've had this group of, of really dedicated people who've been focused on this one issue for a long time. And so they've been coordinating the whole effort. And, and uh, what remains to be seen is can we disperse this out through the, the many, many committees that, that may have something to, uh, to say about it uh, and uh, shrink the oversight piece to maybe uh, a group in our environmental health committee and still keep things moving forward. So that's just kind of the ASHRAE view is, you know, you worry about being able to, to maintain focus, but I, I think we can, can do that. If you look out, outside, what's going to change? Uh, one hopes that uh, we've all suffered enough and, and uh, paid enough costs that there's going to be a will to do something, especially when you put the impact of COVID uh, as it relates to indoor air quality together with the impact of, of wildfires and, and other ambient air quality issues, and then put that together with what we were already starting to do to improve buildings from the point of view of uh, wellness or being healthy buildings, if you'd like to call it that, that, that's a term that antagonizes some people. Buildings themselves aren't healthy, but as I say, we can, uh, a healthy building is really just a, an unhealthy building that we've, we've made better, so it's less unhealthy. There are always these impacts. So that's what we're trying to accomplish. And my, my point of view is that if, if we aren't going to do something now, then I'm going to go to my grave having not seen any significant change in, in my lifetime or even my father's. You know, I, I like to uh, 
point out that when my uh, when my father was president of ASHRAE, this is in 1985, he identified indoor air quality as likely the biggest public health issue of the remainder of the 20th century. Wow. And he, he was right about that. He, he started the ASHRAE Environmental Health Committee during his presidency and was, was always a big proponent of, of in, better indoor air quality, although no, he was known more in his practice for, for energy. And so this is something that we've tried to emphasize a, a number of times over really far too long a time. But now we've had the experience of the last year or so, and we have uh, resilience and indoor environmental quality as the, the key focal areas of the ASHRAE strategic plan. So I'm optimistic, but it's quite possible that um, what comes out of this will be uh, disappointingly limited in, in terms of, of how much change there is. And, and uh, if you want an example of that, just go back to uh, what happened after bioterrorism incidents in the early 21st century, the anthrax mailings in um, 2001. Huge amount of work was done to figure out how to make buildings safer from airborne chemical and biological threats. And if we had done that, we would have had a lot of buildings that were better prepared to deal with with COVID, but uh, all of that went away because the sense of urgency went away and everyone went back to focusing on the things they always focused on, one of them being cost and uh, uh, we're, we're still vulnerable. And all those recommendations ended up on a shelf, right? The, uh... Pretty much, you, pull, you can pull out a lot of reports that were written back then and uh, they're being replicated now and the recommendations are pretty <clears throat> similar to, uh, to what was being made then. I think what the main difference is that there's a much bigger, uh, stronger emphasis on sustainability or on, on environmental impact right now and on, on energy. And I, I think that's a, a good thing. And, and a lot of uh, ideas are already out there about how to get better IAQ uh, sustainably. Since you brought up your father, I should mention, uh, I believe he was a, a HPAC engineering editor earlier in his life. Is that... Uh... Yeah, that's correct from the late 1950s until I think 1971 when he moved uh, away to go into private practice, which is what he did for the mm -hmm. rest of his career in, in Cincinnati. And then uh, you said he was an ASHRAE president in, in 85? or in 85, 86, yeah, past president of the, uh, the Illinois chapter. He was uh, um, one of those true blue ASHRAE guys, which uh, mm -hmm. may have had something to do with my level of involvement in my own career, <laughs> perhaps. I would think so. Well, Bill, I, I appreciate your time. Finally, I guess the last question here with, uh, um, as you're hinting at your personal involvement, just from the last 18 months is I would think your your life has been upended. We, we talked to uh, uh, a colleague, Lindsay Marr at Virginia Tech uh, in our last podcast, and she talked about how, I guess you had to give so many urgent media requests and I think 300 interviews or, or plus, and I would imagine you're at that level as well and she's had to or or beyond and i know she had to uh basically take a sabbatical from teaching for a while how have you managed to uh, to balance it all in the uh, in the spotlight as it were in the arena sure well i, I didn't get a uh, break from teaching i <laughs> i did my usual teaching load from right uh, right here in my basement where i'm talking to you uh, for uh, the, the last uh what two and a half semesters but um it, it was tough because uh, it was something I was asked to do by, by the industry, by ASHRAE, and it was something I wanted to do and I felt I had to do because 
when an opportunity comes along to, to serve like that, uh, uh, you don't say, sorry, uh, I, it's too much on top of my, my job. So I just uh, tried to suck it up and do it, but it was, was hard. Um, for a long time, it was, it was seven days a week and probably 12, 14 hours a day, mostly uh, doing this stuff and keeping up with, with my job. So there was just no break for a long time. We were meeting every two weeks in the task force. And then on top of that, you uh, start getting the interview requests and the request to make presentations. I've, I've had uh, over 150 uh, interviews my, myself over that period. I'm, I'm not quite as uh, attracted to the media, media as, as Lindsay apparently, but that's fine. And then I've also done over 150 uh, presentations, podcasts, webinars for all sorts of organizations that I never would have interacted with. Mm -hmm. uh, National Academies, Federal Facilities Commission, uh, National In Institute of Environmental Health and Safety. Uh, I've done grand rounds for uh, occupational medicine at uh, Rutgers Medical wow. School. It, it's been, been fascinating. Mm -hmm. uh, and so have some of the international uh, contacts. I did a, a program uh, for uh, health public health people in, in Indonesia a while ago. And because some of those have, have led to some pretty strange hours. I've, I've given talks that started at uh, uh, three in the morning, four in the morning. I've actually got one coming up next week in the Philippines. The program starts at 4 a.m. Eastern time in the U.S. So uh, it, it just kind of uh, sucked me in and, and uh, became uh, the main thing in my mind all the time. Now I think we're starting to get back more to normal, uh, but there's still a lot to do and, and we're not done because you know the, the pandemic is not over. I, I see mm -hmm. people writing about the, the pandemic in the past tense and just look at the global uh, case numbers and look at what's happening with this latest surge. Uh, it's not the time to let down our guard. I'm, I'm glad to, to do it. And it's gonna be one of the most meaningful things I've, I've done in my career and I have no regrets about it. Well, thank you very much, Bill. And, and given all the uh, things that press on your time, I'm glad you're able to, I'm very happy you were able to give us uh, some time here as well. Maybe we can touch base again in six months and, and start looking backwards a bit. But uh, um, at the moment, uh, I appreciate the, the words here and our readers do for, and, and listeners and, and viewers and our podcast, uh, um, the words of uh, the insight here um, and all the work you've been doing, certainly, goodness, for the last... 16 months or so. Um, so thank you very much for, for your time. I'll let you get back to your busy schedule, maybe readjusting your uh, sleep patterns for the next 4 a.m. <laughs> presentation you have to make. Yeah, um, my, my pleasure to be with you and I'd be happy to come back uh, again and talk about this or some other subject because I have other interests as well, which I would like to get back to. Right, and ASHRAE has just also shifted to decarbonization. Is there a new, new uh, task force on that? I guess so uh, you might maybe... Yeah, that, that's an interesting footnote is that the, the success of what we've done, even though we're not perfect uh, in the epidemic task force, uh, has been so significant that the society has kind of picked up on that as a model for other uh, urgent efforts. And, and I, I, hope, I hope it works. I, I hope we've been able to understand what we did uh, in the ETF well enough that uh, we can replicate it to address some of the other pressing issues that we have in our field and, and in society. 
Well, I think we will, and we will try to cover that as well. I think I know Buck uh, Ellis spoke with us a bit about that, and we want to try to get that to later in the year. But thanks again for your time here, Bill, and, and uh, hopefully we'll be talking again not too distant future. In the meantime, listeners can look for more relevant content from uh, um, ASHRAE and, and the Epidemic Task Force at ashrae.org. If you want to hear previous episodes of HPAC on the air, please visit our members-only section at hpac.com. And uh, again, thank you so much for your time here, Bill, and, and uh, hopefully the fall will, will continue to, to get better for, for everybody here. So thanks so much. Yeah.